to our first episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling good stories from history. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Stories from the past that tell us something about who we are, as people with lofty aspirations, yet who sometimes sail too close to the rocks. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we're coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We are coming with stories to tell, and we hope you'll listen. For our first episode, we have with us in the studio Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox, and Associate Professor Matthew Janique. Today, we're going to focus on the life of the American adventurer, Walter Murray Gibson, who started life as the son of humble sheep farmers, but who always imagined himself a creature of destiny. After years of travels and misadventures, he rose to become a self-proclaimed prophet, and in the 1880s, the premier of the independent kingdom of Hawaii. As premier, he's most remembered for trying to establish a confederation of all the islands of the Pacific. He wanted to protect all of Polynesia from further Western imperial encroachment. Yet this only scratches the surface of an amazing life in which he also served as admiral of the Guatemalan Navy, tried to start a new religion, and nearly provoked a war between the United States and the Netherlands. In the 19th century, America produced its share of dreamers and visionaries. It also produced a lot of freebooters and scoundrels pretending to be prophets. We still see such people today, but they are a little more subtle in their methods. And it is a bit harder to have the kind of epic adventures that marked the the life of Walter Murray Gibson, who always thought he was cut out for glory and power in the tropics and ended up a prophet and then premier of the independent kingdom of Hawaii. Gibson refused to be bound by convention and followed the whims of his own wide and boundless imagination to what was then known as the ends of the world. Today, we might say he was a fantasist, or more kindly, that he was living his own truth. But what exactly was that truth? Though born in 1822 to English parents of modest means, Gibson always insisted that British noble blood coursed through his veins. He claimed to have been born on a ship in the middle of a fierce Atlantic storm. Due to the fury of the tempest, he and another baby were accidentally switched, and and he ended up with a family of humble sheep farmers who were so poor they migrated to Montreal, where two of Gibson's brothers died of cholera. When his parents moved to New York City, Gibson became entranced by the sight of all the tall sailing ships at harbor. He developed an intense desire to see the world, a desire encouraged by a mysterious uncle whom Gibson claimed had made a fortune as a merchant in faraway Malaya and chosen Gibson as his heir, and who told his nephew that the Malayan people had traditions of, quote, fair-skinned men from the West who should come with wisdom and great power and who should destroy the robbers of Islam, the evil genie of the woods. Enchanted, the young Gibson imagined the sacred city of the Malay Isle with its shining walls and temple roofs, and he wondered who should help, who should teach, and who should do good to the the people of the Indian seas. It is not clear if this uncle ever existed. Gibson also claimed to have spent five years of his youth imbibing the ancient wisdom of a Native American chief. What we do know is that by the age of 16, he was in South Carolina employed as a school teacher. 
There, in his own words, he met a fair and gentle girl of my own age. We often sauntered together in the still woods of Milwee on summer days. We would rest beneath the dense shade and at the foot of some great tree and talk our boyish and girlish fancies. And then without any thought as to mutual tastes, character or fitness, or anything that had to do with our future, but listening only to the music of our own voices, to the alluring notes of surrounding nature, and having only our faces to admire, we loved. Long ere I was a man, we were married. With the help of neighbors, Gibson built a two-room cabin on the Savannah River. Tragically, his wife Rachel died in childbirth, and so at the age of 21, Gibson was a widower with three children. Believing himself to be a child of the sea, he left his daughter and two sons with Rachel's parents and went off to New York City to offer himself as a seaman. The next few years are shrouded in mystery since Gibson's diaries have not survived and his memoir is full of tall tales. It is very likely, though, that he sailed around the Horn as far as California, but then eventually set himself up as a Manhattan commercial agent. With an office on Broadway, he bought and sold to the ships in port. By his late 20s, Gibson was well off and a fixture of New York society, able to clothe himself as the gentleman he always claimed to be. He was tall, dark-haired, with blue eyes and a patrician nose. By all accounts, he was handsome and highly intelligent. Unsatisfied, however, with the life of a man about town, he abandoned his business and traveled to Mexico, visiting ancient Aztec and Mayan sites along the way. He later claimed to have been saved from plunder and murder by an old Aztec whose beautiful daughter gave him a blood-red amulet for protection on his onward journey. After Gibson's return to New York City in 1851, a Guatemalan general furnished him funds to buy a warship that would form the nucleus of a new Guatemalan Navy. As Admiral, Gibson would sail the ship to Central America and deliver a cargo of contraband weapons to the fledgling Republic. Outwardly, he was still a man about town, appearing in his fancy carriage at the theater and with adoring young ladies on his arm. Secretly, he was shopping around for a ship. Eventually, he purchased a 94-foot American Navy surplus man of war, which he named Flirt, and had refurbished, cocked, and repaired. He hired a crew and secretly stockpiled arms, ammunition, and surplus U.S. Navy cannon pieces. At almost 30 years of age, Gibson felt he was finally striking out as the creature of a destiny he always knew he was. That's a great beginning to our story. Um, honestly, Thomas and Andy, before researching for this podcast, I'd never heard of this guy. And yet he seems to kind of encapsulate this amazing 19th century world where the world is shrinking on the one hand through mass transit, mass communication. On the other hand, it's still a wide open world. You haven't got the kind of bureaucratic or official structures yet that, that, that would close down on these type of adventurers. But I, I can't escape this, this kind of nagging sense at the back of my mind that it's also a dual world as well. This is an imperial world. This is a world of, of racial hierarchies and, and colonial exploitation. And I'm sure we're going to come back to that for sure. Um, the way he tells the story of his, uh, uh, of his birth is, is just incredible. Like, 
it's funny that people going places seem to feel like they need to have already come from somewhere. So Gibson's claiming that, you know, he's accidentally switched at birth and this explains, you know, why he can end up as the son of sheep farmers when he's really of royal blood. And it just strikes me as amazing that here's a guy who's obviously done quite successfully for himself and yet he needs that story, that myth in the back of his mind. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation, Matthew. Um, It seems that, yes, while American society was without a titled nobility, that did not quench the desire for status and privilege that only noble blood could offer. And I think also, at the time, having an auspicious origin story was a license to dream. If you came from somewhere, you were going somewhere eventually. You might have misadventures, but you were on your way somewhere and you would conform to the destiny of your birth somehow. I think that's what he had in mind. I also really enjoy this story. Like you, Matt, I didn't know anything about uh, Gibson before before getting into this story. And uh, I think knowing uh, a little about the heights he's about to to get to, um, his his background really shows how much of the, the 19th century is this time of outsized influence by certain individuals, particularly if people knew just enough or could successfully pretend to know just enough and possess the certain charisma and take advantage of the new technologies and transportation of options available to them. They could have enormous influence on American culture or even other people's societies. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this turns out. And we're back. Thomas, can you take the story forward for us? So Gibson was almost ready to sail when the Coast Guard boarded his ship and impounded all his firepower. On the suspicion that Gibson was a gunrunner, the flirt was forbidden to sail. Nevertheless, under cover of of darkness, Gibson set out with an 11-man crew and managed to escape New York Harbor unnoticed. By now, he had no intention of sailing for Central America He was no longer Admiral Gibson, and the flirt was no longer the flagship of the Guatemalan Navy. Instead, the flirt was now his and carrying a cargo of 80 tons of ice that, if sold in Brazil, could make Gibson a wealthy man. Yet the voyage of the flirt was marked by sickness, mutiny, and misadventure. After days of rough seas, it became more and more obvious that they were completely adrift with no idea of where they were. The crew held the skipper at knife point, and Gibson was forced to leave his sickbed and restore order. Landing in Cape Verde, the Portuguese authorities suspected Gibson of being a freebooter and privateer. Talking his way out of a jam, Gibson managed to set sail only to discover a spiteful crew member had destroyed the ship's chronometer and other nautical instruments. Sailing blind, they made it to a Brazilian port of Maceo, where only two of 80 tons of ice were left to sell. In a drunken brawl, the shipmaster stabbed the first mate, and the Brazilians arrested Gibson's entire crew. It was at this low point that Gibson decided to sail on to Sumatra, where, he said, his mysterious and wealthy uncle had died 
and left him a vast inheritance. With a new crew and new instruments, Gibson set out on a three-month circuit of of the South Atlantic and Indian Ocean, stopping only for fresh water and provisions. The flirt passed through the Sunda Strait between Java and Sumatra and landed at Mentok, which proved to be a terrible mistake. Mentok was what Paul Bailey calls the Great Tin Depot of the Dutch colonial empire, a jealously guarded, spy-ridden, and sensitive port. The Dutch authorities were immediately suspicious of Gibson, who carried no cargo and commanded an out-of-date gunboat. Was he just an eccentric tourist with too much money and time on his hands? Or was he trying to stir up trouble among the Sumatran princes? The Dutch monitored Gibson's every move. They planted spies on his ship. After all, only a few years before, an Englishman named James Brooke had landed in Borneo and managed to convince natives of that island to rebel and accept his authority as the Raja of Sarawak. And so when Gibson expressed his admiration for Brooke and began to receive a series of Sumatran visitors, the Dutch took notice. Gibson's undoing was a letter addressed to the Sultan of Jambi in which he wrote, amazingly, I am able to provide you all you may require for the American government has no want of gunpowder, balls, cannons, and guns. I am able to help to do good to to the Malays because I am not partial to the Dutch. If possible, I will exterminate all the Dutch. Within a few days, I shall be with you. I will then be able to take possession of this state. I, myself, and all my officers send you a great many salutations. Whether or not it was a forgery cooked up by the British to by the Dutch to entrap Gibson, he was arrested, imprisoned, and charged with treason. For a year and a half, Gibson languished in a Javanese jail, trying to learn Dutch and Malay, so as to better plead his case. Denied a defense attorney, he was eventually found guilty and condemned to 12 years of hard labor. Yet due to the efforts of several Javanese friends, Gibson was able to escape from prison wearing a wig, fake beard, face paint, and a new set of clothes smuggled into his cell. An American merchant ship conveyed the penniless Gibson back to the States. It was now 1853, and with nothing but the ill-fitting clothes on his back, he was determined to press his case against the Dutch. He met with Secretary of State William Marcy, who agreed to support his claims for, for, for financial compensation. Newspapers and congressmen picked up the story and took his side. If the Dutch refused to cooperate, the New York Herald called for the seizure of their Caribbean island colony of Curaçao. Gibson, for his part, demanded armed reprisals against the Dutch. Attempting to impose further pressure, he made a tour of European cities, but ended up penniless once again, this time in Liverpool. He showed up at the office of the American consul the famous author Nathaniel Hawthorne, and begged for funds to get across the Atlantic. Hawthorne had seen his share of American vagabonds and drunken sailors. Gibson, though, was, quote, a gentleman of refined manners, handsome figure, and remarkably intellectual aspect. Unfortunately, the vicissitudes of his life appear to have tinctured him with superstition, inclining him to look upon himself as marked out for something strange. Hawthorne questioned Gibson's sanity when he said he was in fact an English lord. 
and as soon as he won his case against the Dutch, he would lay claim to his ancient title and estate. Back in the States, Gibson wrote a memoir and dedicated it to the women of Christendom. He became a celebrated fixture on the East Coast lecture circuit. One of his listeners recalled that, with bated breath, we sat while the veritable wizard of romance took us with him through the Indian seas into strange lands and among strange people upon wonderful adventure, all so vivid and so natural that you saw it all before you and there is no thought of questioning or discrediting a word of it. Gibson spoke of cannibals and a strange hairy race of subhumans who were filthy and shameless in their habits. Boosting sales and lecture fees was Gibson's titillating claim that from his Dutch prison cell, he carried on a romance with the beautiful Sayi Pa, a Javanese princess whom he referred to as the winged one. So far in this story, this man's ambition and charisma seem to be racing each other in this cycle of getting him in and out of trouble. You know, he takes on an opportunity to be an admiral, a flag officer with a foreign navy, but then runs into trouble with another government in the Portuguese, and he talks his way out of and into more problems. It's like Gibson's silver tongue can get him out of just about any problem except with the Dutch, apparently. Those guys are able to really stick it to him. But under all of this, he's got this belief in destiny or, or something, and his personal abilities keep pushing him on, no matter you know, the heights and then the fall that come from it. Um, even other Americans seem to look at this guy with suspicion. I mean, really? A lord? You're a lord? Okay. But he's so charismatic, he's able to just kind of float over almost anything. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I read somewhere that uh, uh, Sam Neill played him uh, in a movie. Um, and I can, I can kind of see that. Um, but, but, but there you go. The thing that gets me is the context in which this is all happening. You know, you've got these colonial empires, the British and the Dutch are, are both out there um, in, in what's known as the East Indies. They're both fighting over who can control the, the valuable resources of these places. They're both competing with the indigenous peoples. I know like during this era, the Dutch launched several expeditions against uh, the indigenous Javanese people. Um, including failed expeditions against Bali, uh, you know, shortly before Gibson turns up. So you can kind of understand why the Dutch are, are a little worried about this American rolling into town. Because it, these are colonial empires. They're already kind of chaotic places. Uh, and, and to have this extra, extra guy there. I also wonder about you know, the context of this self-made man, Andy. Like, like That's a great point about just his ambition, his drive. But I also wonder, like, to what extent is the audience for this really driving the story? You know, in the 19th century, you've got all of these uh, people uh, that want stories of adventure, want stories of heroism, want stories of, of, uh, of triumphing against the odds. You've also got this sense that you, you need to somehow go out there and, and help, quote unquote, civilize the world and, and bring it to order. It gets me wondering, you know, is Gibson a product of that? Is he a driver of that? I, I just don't know. Oh, that's great, Matthew and Andy both. Uh, I would love to know what books Gibson read and which formed his worldview. 
certainly he was aware of James Brooke, uh, and certainly he wrote his memoir. Um, he had a certain formula in mind he was following, and he had a pretty sophisticated understanding of his audience and what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about exotic lands and Javanese princesses, romance in the tropics, strange creatures, evil Dutch colonial officials. So he packed his memoir with as much punch as he could muster. And as you pointed out, uh, he catered to the racist tropes of the time and how people imagine the world from the East Coast to the United States, which brings up an interesting point. And that is that Gibson saw himself already as a kind of protector of native peoples from European imperialism. But in allegedly protecting these people, he himself would, he hoped, achieve his fantasy of becoming a king. And this perspective was readily accepted among his American audience, who didn't see the U.S. yet, at least, as an imperial power with colonies overseas, but rather as a, but rather as a society capable of producing remarkable men with ambitions of saving the world, and in doing so becoming sort of like father figures to the non-white peoples of the world. You've also got this like amazing ambiguity there as well, because people like Brooke, um, he's widely criticised in Parliament for drawing the British Empire into a place that the, the, that the leadership of the British Empire does not think Britain should be. And yet he's lauded in public for his his success as as the ruler um as the as the sultan uh, or the raja um, um so it's just amazing and we're back uh Thomas, can you take us through the Gibson story even further? Yes. So, thank you, Matthew. When, with Gibson stirring up anti-Dutch feeling right and left, there is open talk of war between the U.S. and the Dutch. But then the Dutch produced a statement signed by Gibson in Java in which he confessed that, I have allowed my fancy and my vanity to get the better of my judgment. I remember to have indulged in the bravados that I would become a potentate in the East. Though Gibson insisted it was a forgery, his case against the Dutch was now dead in the water. By 1857, public interest in his stories of ill-fated love in the tropics was also on the wane. Now on everyone's lips was the impending war with the Mormons, who 10 years earlier had settled in Utah under their prophet Brigham Young and sought to carve out the kingdom of God in the canyons and valleys of that parched wilderness. Gibson found himself nudged aside on the lecture circuit by militant preachers, condemning the so-called Mormon menace, the practice of polygamy, and open rebellion in the Western mountains. As it happened, the Mormon's official representative in D.C., Dr. John Bernheisel, attended a Gibson lecture, Afterwards, the two spent hours discussing the standoff between the Mormons and the Buchanan administration. Gibson believed their cause was just, that they only wanted to be left alone. But plans were underway to send an army to bring the barbarian Mormon hordes to heel. Gibson was convinced resistance was futile and that the Mormons' only choice was to flee. But if they weren't safe in the isolation of Utah, where could they go? Gibson had a plan. 
he would personally lead their escape to Papua New Guinea. As Paul Bailey put it, Papua was, quote, a vast, green, fertile, beautiful world waiting eagerly as a bride for the unwanted peoples of the earth. There, the Mormons could marry as many wives as they wished and rule their new homeland under the laws of their church and the courts of their faith, unhindered, undisturbed. It didn't matter that Gibson had never been anywhere near New Guinea. With new passion, he returned to the lecture circuit and proclaimed his solution to the so-called Mormon problem. For much less than the cost of sending an army to Utah, the government could transport 100,000 saints across the Pacific. Newspapers reported on the so-called Gibson plan. Soon, he was granted an audience in the White House. Initially, Buchanan seemed interested, but when Gibson said it would cost $5 million, the president flew into a rage and ended the interview. The U.S. Army marched to Utah, but the expected violence and devastation never took place. Instead, the Army established a garrison in Utah, and Brigham Young resigned from the governorship. Even with this relatively peaceful settlement, Gibson did not give up on his Papua plan. He wrote to the Mormon prophet, claiming, While I lay in a dungeon in the island of Java, a voice said to me, You shall show the way to a people who shall build up a kingdom in these isles, whose lines of power shall run around the, the earth. With his three children, all teenagers now, Gibson made the western trek across the plains, arriving in Salt Lake City in October 1859. Gibson was confident that he could convince Brigham Young of the wisdom of exchanging his mountains, valleys, and arid wastes for a beautiful green island in the South Seas. Thus, just shy of 40 years of age, Gibson had started a family, won and lost a fortune, traveled the world, written a memoir, deceived people right and left, and failed to incite an insurrection. Even though he'd experienced nothing but suffering and humiliation in the South Seas, they were still his lodestar. You know, your earlier comment that Gibson really knows his audience, I find is increasingly on point. Um, it's not just that he's got these stories. He has ready audiences for his ideas, his pitches, his experiences. The fact that he becomes a respected lecturer and goes on tour talking to Americans who are interested in learning about lands abroad and parts unknown and other subjects... Things that he actually doesn't know that much about, except maybe being imprisoned in Java, um, was both an interesting historical description and yet, I have to admit, also uncomfortably familiar to our own times when thinking about people's vulnerability to charismatic figures. I was trying to come up with comparisons to his life, and the two people that sprung to my mind so far for him at this point are like P.T. Barnum or Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of the notorious Theranos company. Um... How a businessman, a sailor, and a lecturer suddenly just decides that he's got to be the best idea to relocate the Mormons, of which he is not one, to another territory of which the U.S. and himself have no experience or jurisdiction over. And he makes the case to the president. This, all of this experience, it makes me wonder if Gibson's history actually tells us more about him, the man, or rather, if he is more of a lens through which I'm learning more about 19th century American society and culture in general.
That's wonderful, Andy. There's so much to say there um, in response. Yes, only in 19th century America could someone like him exist. Uh, it's like taking a tour through American society in the 19th century. Gibson is pulling this string here and that string there, playing to different audiences and engaging in myth-making on an epic scale. It's a remarkable tour de force. Um, I don't believe a lot of his tall tales. I don't believe that he, uh, a Javanese princess fell in love with him from his Dutch prison cell. I just don't think a prison cell is typically the, the key to a woman's heart. Um, but he made things up. And so in that sense, he was like P.T. Barnum. And uh, he sought to take advantage of the credulousness of his audience. And before we take pride in imagining ourselves less credulous now, we're, I don't think we are personally, but that's another story. But you compared him to P.T. Barnum. Another comparison is to Teddy Roosevelt, who also led an epic life. He was a social reformer, cattle rancher, rough rider, president, Amazon rainforest explorer. Um, but I like to think of Gibson also as a kind of Icarus who flies too close to the sun. Um, and, but by all accounts, you know, he came off as extremely polished and intelligent, a respectable gentleman with a, with a Southern brawl that captivated audiences, a velvety speaker who just understood how to speak to people. And even when they thought he was only half sane, they didn't want him to stop telling his stories. But I, I want to I kind of push back on, on some of this, because, of course, yes, he to a certain extent, succeeds. Yes, this is a classic 19th century American story. Yes, it tells us so much about 19th century America. That's great. But it's also a very rare story. And when I'm thinking of Gibson, the people I'm thinking of personally are the thousands who came to America in the 19th century and didn't have that successful narrative, weren't able to carve out the space for their own narratives you know gibson's really lucky in getting to tell his own story and I, I it's it's an amazing story but i'm thinking of of all those immigrants that came in um and and didn't quite reach the heights that gibson did i wonder how many of those people you're talking about looked at people like gibson for exactly that same sort of effect that's who i want to become i know i want to be steve jobs <laughs> Yeah, from what I've read about Gibson, he was disaffected from his family. And I think that they very much did not become these larger-than-life personalities that Gibson became. And that may have been part of the problem from Gibson's perspective. He just could not uh, imagine the thought of being somehow conventional, quote-unquote. He had to be something spectacular in his own imagination. So that may be part of the story there. I'd like to ask, at this, at this juncture... What about his kids? He's finally reunited with them, and they're all teenagers, and he whisks them away to Utah, and then whatever is going to come next. What did they think about their father? That's a great question. Yeah, um, he had three children. A daughter, Tallulah, was her name. And by all accounts, he was close to her. He had a good relationship with her, and we'll hear more about her in later episodes to come. We have two more episodes to come. Uh, he had a more indifferent relationship with his two sons. Um, they also feature in later episodes, but he basically took his three children in hand once they reached their teenage years, I think in part because he didn't want to 
let them become what he had escaped. He didn't want them to be sheep farmers or backwoodsmen. He wanted them to have, you know, pie in the sky ambitions. And the only way that he could give them those ambitions was to have them tag along with him as he searched for the stars, so to speak. But more on that in later episodes. Thank you for tuning in to our first episode of Tell Me Another. We hope you liked what you heard and want to join us again. In our next episodes, we'll see Walter Gibson, the romantic dreamer and con man, rising to new heights, first as a prophet and then as premier of the Kingdom of Hawaii. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.